Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great morning, the body of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness to us and for calling us before your throne today to worship you. You've created us in your image. You reflect wonderful, your wonderful qualities into our life and through our lives so that we can become a magnification of your glory. God, thank you for revealing yourself in this world and allowing us to be part of it. We know that our, our world has sinned greatly against you. Individually, we have grieved your heart. But through Jesus Christ, you've given us hope. You've given us forgiveness. You've given us new life. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us this morning and you will lead us and speak to us through your words. We shout, we shout your praises We give to you because we trust in you. We lean upon you and we rely upon you. Now, God, we look to your wisdom and we look to your truth. Please shape us and mold us so that we can be the best reflection of your image that you've created us to be. Thank you for this work in us. Thank you for allowing us to hold in our hands the scripture and to look into it today. May your name be glorified by it. And God, we pray also for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not with us today. They might be sick. I pray you'd minister to them. Some of them, things going on in life. And some of our brothers and sisters are on the mission field sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ into dark worlds. Lord, please protect them and go before them and come behind them with your grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to... Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Again, I'm blessed to receive the privilege of standing up here and sharing the Word of God with you. Please do keep praying for Pastor Adam and the missions team that is in Asia. Uh, they, uh, they've been doing the work of God, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've heard nothing but good reports. Uh, God is doing some amazing work there. Please keep them in your prayers. This morning, I'd like to dive into chapter 2 and uh, talk a little bit about God's work of creation and, uh, and continue working through this passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis. Last week... If you were here, we introduced chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 3, which were all about day 7 of creation, which is the day that God rested from his work, and he declared everything complete. And in chapter 1, God details and outlines very carefully everything that he created and brought into existence in six days. And then he comes to chapter 2, and starting in verse 4, he begins to describe a beautiful place that he created on the earth called the Garden of Eden. And he describes how he placed Adam and Eve in that garden, and he describes some very specific things that he wants Adam and Eve to be doing in that garden. And there's some very unique qualities to this place, but it's interesting when you read the book of Genesis, and you read 
the way chapter 1 is laid out, very chronologically, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, and day 6, and if you've been here with us, you know that um, the, based on the Hebrew language, those are literal 24-hour days that God laid out these specific things in his creation. He was very careful to lay them out that way. And then in chapter 2, uh, he changes the grammatical structure completely. If you know anything about grammar, if, uh, if you know anything about... Um, uh, language arts, you've studied, there are different literary styles or different ways to write. And uh, the, write, the way chapter 1 is written is very different from the way chapter 2 is written, and there's a reason for that. Chapter 2 is not meant to be a sequence of events, a chronology of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He's not trying to lay it out so that we can get an outline in our head of exactly what happened and when. When you look into this, it actually, if you try to look at it that way, you can be very confused because in verse 8, it mentions that the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he placed man whom he had formed. And then in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. So if you were to look at it that way, you might be a little confused. It would sound like God put Adam in the garden twice. And the reason, when God repeats himself about things, it's not because he's trying to say this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. He's trying to communicate a point. He's trying to teach us something more uh, in depth about a quality about himself or a quality about man. And there's something here to be seen that is not revealed in chapter 1 on day 6. But let's read, starting in verse 4, and see how he lays it out. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then in verses 10 through 14, he describes four rivers that are in the garden. He describes uh, the Pishon, the Gihon, and the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in the Garden of Eden. Uh, basically, God gives a quick summary of everything he created. He created the earth, and he describes the way the ground looked. He described that everything was being watered by a mist that came up from the surface of the ground to water the earth. There was no rain at this point in history. Uh, in fact, the first recorded rain biblically was at the flood, when God destroyed the entire world with water. Uh, but in this particular case, there was no rain, and then God took a very special place in all of his creation, and he planted a very special garden in his creation. And then he took Adam and Eve and he placed them in this garden and he placed two very special trees among other trees in that garden. He, there were multiple trees that Adam and Eve could eat from of varying kinds of fruits and different vegetables that they could eat. And, uh, and he gave them two special trees. One was a tree of life and another one was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about the difference between those two trees in a couple of minutes. 
But Adam and Eve were placed there for the purpose of cultivating and working the garden. So there were specific things in this garden that couldn't grow unless they were, unless God used man to cultivate those things and to help them grow. Now it doesn't mean they were incomplete and it doesn't mean that they were, um, they were not good enough. It just means that God specifically wants creation to work hand in hand with mankind. He wants mankind to be a part of his creation. God does not need man. God does not need the earth. And he does not need the universe. To say that he needs any of us would be to say that he's incomplete without us. And that would mean that God is less than who he says he is. God is absolutely sovereign, independent on his own, and he doesn't need anything. So for him to create this earth and make it beautiful, and for him to create us and bring us into this world and breathe life into our beings and give us something special to allow us specifically out of all of creation to reflect his image, the only thing on planet earth that has the privilege of reflecting the image of God. He creates us because he is blessing you and I with the privilege of entering into his work and being part of his work and being in an intimate relationship with him. So chapter 2 is going to be all about God, the story of God's relationship with his creation. Chapter 1 is all a story about God's work of creation God is the creator and chapter 2 is a story about God and his relationship and his intimate involvement in everything that he made. In the beginning of chapter 2 verse 4, it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, it is an account. Um, He's saying basically it's the same language in Hebrew that is repeated many other times in the book of Genesis. When he speaks about Noah, when he speaks about Jacob, when he speaks about Esau, when he speaks about Isaac, he says these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, this is the story of each of these people. And when God lays these out in the book of Genesis, he gives us a picture of God's relationship with these people. And in this particular case, he sums up all of creation in the Garden of Eden, and he says this is the story of God and his relationship with mankind. And so there's some really uniquely interesting things here. Number one, uh, number one truth that we want to see out of this is that God is the creator and Lord over all of his creation. We've already seen in chapter 1 that God is the creator. When you go read chapter 1, you're going to see verses like, then God said, God made, God called, God said, let us make man in our image, God created man in his image. All throughout, you're going to see the word God, and that word is a Hebrew word, which is Elohim. It means the majesty of God revealed, and in some cases, that word is plural. But that word Elohim is specifically a reference to God the Creator. But then in chapter 2, he switches, the, the writer of this book switches to calling him Lord God. And that word Lord is the word Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. Originally in Hebrew, it was just four letters, Y-H-W-H, which was very hard to pronounce. In fact, the Hebrew people hesitated to pronounce it at all or make any attempts at pronouncing it for fear of transgressing God's commandments about taking the name of the Lord God in vain and honoring the name of the Lord God. They wouldn't even speak this name. 
And then later for the sake of use and for the sake of speaking about the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of the covenant that was established in the Garden of Eden, they needed to establish a name for the one true God because there were so many false gods being worshipped by, by cultures, by nations, by people, and by individuals. They needed to establish this. And so they took the, the, the letters YHWH and they added vowels to them so they could be pronounced. They took the, um, the vowel from the word Adonai, which is, the name, which is the name of God, which means Lord. And they took a vowel from the name Elohim, which is, means God is creator. And they put them into those four letters and they, it is now pronounced Yahweh, which basically means God, creator, and Lord. And it was the name that referred to the covenant promise that God made with Adam and that God made with Abraham, that God made with Isaac and God made with Jacob and God made with all of his people. So the reason this is important is because it sets this God out and sets him apart from all other gods on planet earth. You'll notice in chapter four, you see it a number of times in verse seven, the Lord God formed man and breathed life into him. In verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden. In verse nine, the Lord God caused to grow every tree in the garden. In verse 8 and in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. In verse 16, the Lord God commanded man. Verse 18, the Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. In verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. In verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib. There is no other chapter in the book of Genesis that mentions the Lord God this many times this way. The, the phrase Lord God is used, but not like this. God is making a point. He is laying out this fact that he is God. He is creator of all the universe, but he is also Lord and master and in, intimately involved in his creation. He doesn't want to be a God who stands apart from his creation, casting it all into existence, spinning the world into motion and setting it out to do what it's going to do while he sits up here as supreme God, uh, separate from his people. He gets involved in the lives of his people. This makes a difference to how we view our God. This makes a difference how we live our lives. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 through 28, it says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. And that word Lord is the word Yahweh. And the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, you will be laid. Basically, this is what he says. It is I, the Lord God, the maker of all things, making fools out of anybody who says otherwise. I decide which cities fall which cities will be full of people or not. I decide when the, whether the seas will be full or dry. I decide whether the rivers are full or dry. He decides who will rule over the people and he decides where his temple will be. This is the Lord God. He is not 
somebody that we just believe in because he exists, because he created the world. He is somebody that we serve because he is the one that is in charge and he is the one that is in control. He is a God to be feared and revered in this earth. In Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. This is God explaining his control over all the things that are out of our control. And it says that, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. He allows the world to constantly proclaim that he is God. He is involved. He is in control. And we are to fear him and stand in awe of him. So we are created to fear God. Now, uh, in light of other religions and in light of other concepts of of, um, worldviews, we are constantly faced with having to decide which religion is reliable. In our society, uh, we are faced with the question, if, if you don't have to ask the question yourself, many people will probably come to you and ask this question. How do you know that this is the truth? How do you know that your religion is the one that is true? And when you look at Scripture, if we were to go back through the history of Scripture and study the authority of the Word of God and look at the evidence in uh, archaeology and history and see the the numerous proofs and evidences that there is design in our creation, that there is a God that is intimately involved in our ways. Any God or any religion that professes a God that does not tie back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant with Abraham and Adam, the God of the creator of Genesis, any God that is not this God is a false God. So there are a lot of, lot of opinions and a lot of ideas. A lot of people would say, you know, we're all, ultimately there's this giant mountain and everybody worshiping different gods and different religions are traveling up the same mountain and will eventually all reach the same top. Well, it all leads to the same place. And according to the God of the Bible, they do not all lead to the same place. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Many are following this road. Narrow is the road that leads to life. There are few who find it. And then uh, there are, this scripture calls us to fear God and to honor him. Now, as you look through Genesis, as you study the book of Genesis as a whole, we have to recognize too that these are not individual stories that can be broken out and separated and made to be like tales that we just tell our kids that don't go together. We do do that because we train our kids, we teach our kids, and that's how we learn. We learn one story at a time, but ultimately they all go together. And we see the same theme all throughout Genesis and all throughout the Word of God, God calling us to recognize that He's Lord and He is God. If you were to look at the story of Jacob alone in Scripture, and you were to go through in Genesis and study the story of Jacob, you would see that Jacob was a very troubled guy. He was the son of Isaac. Um, he stole the blessing from his brother. And he lied to his dad. He started off his life um, in a very, very bad way. And, uh, and he led a troubled life. He had to run and fear that his brother was going to kill him. And he lived a life of fear. But he believed in the existence of the Creator. He believed in the God of Abraham and he believed in the God of Isaac. And if you were to go study that story, you would see that Jacob called 
God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, but he refused to call him his God. And there was a point in time when Jacob had this vision of angels coming up and down. Uh, in this vision, there was a ladder and there were angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And they call, God called out to Jacob and said, Jacob, I'm going to bless you like I've blessed your father and your father's father. I am going to give you my covenant. I am going to be your God and you will be my people and you will multiply and fill the earth. And I am going to bless you and take care of you. And Jacob said, his response was, if you do this for me, If you do this for me, if you do this for me, he listed a bunch of ifs and he said, God, if you will be this God for me, then you will be my God. And so Jacob continued to deny and to to live believing that God is the creator, but not Lord. And then there came a point in his life when he was completely undone and he realized that his brother Esau was most likely going to kill him and his family. And Uh, He wrestled with God all night long and came to this place where he finally was able to admit and submit to God. And he made a monument and he gave it a name. It was a Hebrew name that meant God, my Lord. Finally was brought to a place in his life where he was able to admit that to surrender his life to God and to the hands of God. And at this point is when God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And God passed down this covenant into Jacob's life. It's an awesome story. You should go read it. But it's one of those stories you can't just read a piece. You've got to read about 10 chapters to get that whole picture. It's an amazing story. But here's what it means. God is the creator and Lord over all of his creation, meaning that God not only created us, and it's not enough to just believe that he's the creator. For some of us in this room, all this talk about science and archaeology and history and evolution, for us, that's a moot point. For us, we've nailed that down, and we've kind of determined in our hearts that we've put our faith in the God of the Bible, and we've put our faith in this truth, and we're not wrestling with that. But for some of us, we have accepted all this truth. We've grown up in church. If we had Bible quiz right now, it would probably be a really intense competition if we divided the room in half and asked you guys random Bible questions. You guys would be popping answers left and right because you know it. You know this word. And some of you even believe that it's absolutely true, but there's a difference in believing that it is true and believing that God is your Lord and your God. There has to come a point in time where God becomes our personal Lord and Savior, where we surrender to him and say, okay, God, I believe that you are my creator, but I believe that I've sinned against you. My relationship with you is broken, and I want to submit my life to you. It is not me who is determining my life, my destiny, what I want to do, what ambitions I want to have in life, and what I want to go for. I surrender all of that into your hands. You are my Lord, and I live my life for you. There's got to come a point in time where we surrender it, just like Jacob, broken before God. So, truth number one, God is the creator and Lord of all of his creation. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way down through the end of this chapter. But another thing that we see is that man is ruler and steward of God's creation. This is something that is illustrated in chapter 2 very well. Because it says that in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And then if you were to flip back to chapter 1, you would see in verse 28, 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he gave them all the plants and the animals and told them they were free to eat of uh, the plants. And, um, and then they, he blessed it and called it very good. Now this is one thing that we need to see is that chapter 2, everything that happens in chapter 2, God giving... Um, God planting man in the Garden of Eden, God planting the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God taking the rib out of Adam and forming Eve. All of this that happens in chapter 2 happened on day 6 in chapter 1. All of this was completed before he got to the end of day 6 and said it was very good. Because you'll notice down in verse 18, Then the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. This is the only time in here where God says something is not good in his creation. Where he's laying it all out. He says this part right here is not good. He has Adam and he's in the midst of creating on day six. And he's got the earth and he has the plants and he has the animals. And he's planted a garden. He has the tree of life. He has the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he's created Adam and he's placed him in the garden. And he says it's not quite complete yet. It's not good. And so he takes the rib and he forms Eve. And he places Eve in the garden of Eden with him. And then at the end of that day he says it is all good. But what's interesting here is what God is commanding. Adam and Eve together to be responsible for. God does not need Adam and Eve to take care of the garden. God does not need Adam and Eve to make the planet go round. But he places us here for the purpose of involving us in his creation in a number of different ways. We're to be ruler and we are to be a steward. A steward is somebody who doesn't own it, but they're in charge of taking care of it. We don't own this earth. We don't own our possessions, we don't own our children, we don't own our futures, we don't own our time, we don't own the breath of life that is in our bodies. We do not own the image of God that we reflect. God owns all of that. We are in charge of taking care of it for a certain purpose. And in chapter 2, we see a number of different things. Number 1, uh, well in, verse, in chapter 1, we see that we are commanded to multiply and fill the earth. This was a command that came before the fall of man. Some people have asked me the question, if Adam and Eve never sinned, would there have just been Adam and Eve on planet earth forever? Well, according to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God designed as part of the plan multiplication. He put the breath of life into Adam and Eve, and he put the image of God into Adam and Eve to reflect in this earth and to multiply and fill this earth with the image of God. One of the jobs of mankind was to fill the earth. So that means children, babies, infants are a blessing Not only a blessing from God, but a command from God. And so even if because of the sin of this world and because of the curse that we live under, sometimes that means some of us um, may have a difficult time fulfilling that particular command. But there are other ways we can be in part of taking care of and cultivating and cherishing this part of God's creation and his image which might change the way we view certain things in this world that have become acceptable, like abortion, where roughly 3,500 babies are being killed every single day in the United States of America. 
This might change the way we look at it when we consider that we are created in God's image and commanded to multiply. And in some cultures, people are even being taught that population is an issue and we need to be careful and institute policies that involve population control. That's a very real thing. It does happen in countries today. Um, If you go to some of those countries, those people will even ask you, don't you think it's crowded here? Don't you think it's crowded here? And that's part of the process of getting these people to eliminate portions of their population. If God was concerned about that, if God was concerned about overfilling planet earth with people and people being a problem, he would not have commanded Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. He he knows about exponential math more than we do. And God was not afraid of that. And he commanded it, and he looked at it, and he said that it was good, not only good, but very good. And he didn't just command Adam and Eve to do that, he commanded Abraham to do that. He said, I'm going to bless you, and I want you to multiply, and you're going to multiply so much, your descendants are going to number the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then he said the same thing to his son um, Isaac, and they said the same thing to Jacob, and so on with the covenant that God made. So man is created to multiply and then also to subdue, to subdue and rule over the earth. God has given us authority. He took the animals, uh, all of the animals that were there, and he marched them before Adam in verse, uh, 18, or verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever that man called the living creature, that was its name. He marched every single animal on planet earth before Adam and so that Adam could give the animal its name. God established a, a rule and an authority and a boundary and um, a structure to the people that were on planet earth, to this, this structure that was on planet earth. Now, authority is something that we have a hard time with, but we have to recognize that that also came before the fall of man. It was part of God's design. Authority and order is part of God's design. It doesn't matter how you try to get around it. We will always be under somebody's authority. Our children have a really hard time grasping that. We do our best to teach them. You know, if you disobey, there's going to be consequences. If you obey, things will go well for you. If you disobey, things are going to get harder. We try to make it as simple as possible, but they still struggle with that. Teenagers have a really hard time for that. In fact, when we're headed off to college, a lot of us are looking for some kind of a career path that will allow us to not be told what to do anymore. We hope that somewhere along the lines, we're going to get a good enough job, we'll get paid well enough, and we'll be able to tell everybody else what to do, and nobody else will be over us. But as many of you know, it doesn't matter how high on the ladder you get, there's always going to be somebody that is an authority over you. And even if you, by some chance, become the ruling power on planet Earth, you still have to answer to God, the creator and Lord of the universe. So everything falls under an authority structure, and that's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed us. To live in rebellion to that is to live in rebellion to our creator. Another aspect is that we are created to cultivate and keep the garden. That word cultivate means work. Keep means to serve. Those were designed before the fall of man. Some of us attribute the work that we have to do 
to the sin of Adam and Eve. We like to, every Monday morning, we're probably under our breath cursing Adam and Eve for taking of the apple, you know, and saying, I can't believe that they make me have to do this because they sinned against God. But in a lot of ways, we blame sin for the work that we have to do in this world, but God designed it and ordained it to be part of his creation. We are designed to be workers and involved in his creation. So man is a ruler and a steward of the creation of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. God requires his stewards to be found trustworthy and to be found faithful. God has chosen to trust into our hands the beautiful things that he has created. Now there's a, you know, environmentalism gets a bad rap, I think, because uh, so much of it and what we understand about it is politically motivated um, and there's a lot of money behind all that and it's really hard to determine what we can do that will actually benefit and help our environment. But we do have to look at scripture and go back to the very beginning and see that one of the very few things that God says we are responsible for is cultivating and caring for the world that we live in and caring for the animals that, we, that are under our authority. That is part of our job Yes, it's been corrupted by sin. Yes, it's been corrupted by governments and authorities and money and pride. It's been corrupted by the world that we live in and by death and by disease. And many of, anim- many of the animals that God have created have gone extinct already. Many of the plant species have gone extinct already because the world is slowly unraveling because of the curse of sin. But somewhere in the midst of all of that, we are charged with the responsibility of actually caring about our environment. I'm not going to stand up here and preach about environmentalism because it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to know exactly how we can help. But I think there are some simple ways we could. If we were to evaluate the way we live our lives, waste certainly comes into the picture, and um, we might want to take all that God has given us and ask ourselves whether or not we are being fully faithful to him with it. Because these things are not given to us to use for our own glory, to take for our own benefit, to take for our own selfish advantage. But the things that we are given, that we are allowed to place our time and energy and hands on, are given to us for the purpose of transforming into an object of worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator and Lord of this universe. Everything we have becomes an object of worship because we are created in the image of God. We're the only things on the planet Earth that can do that. The other thing is that, uh, the other truth is that we, God and man are in a covenant relationship with God. So chapter 2 illustrates that God is Lord, God is creator. Chapter 2 illustrates that we do have a job on this earth. We are created to reflect his image. We're created to cultivate, to subdue and rule. We're created to multiply. But we are also in a covenant relationship with him. And I think this is one of the most important parts of this whole passage of scripture. Because this whole thing is about the relationship of God with his creation, specifically with you and with I. God designed us to have this relationship with him. Number one, we see that there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, it says this. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, then he goes on to explain the consequences of disobedience. God lays out before mankind a relationship that goes both ways. It's a a relationship of faithfulness one to the other. It is a covenant. It is something that requires obedience. It's part of the authority system that God set up in this earth. And he puts the garden, he puts in the Garden of Eden a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And just like in Deuteronomy, he sets before Adam and Eve life and prosperity and death and adversity. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were told to eat freely of any tree of the Garden of Eden, but and the tree of life they could eat any time, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were not to eat because in the day they eat of it, they would surely die. It is a relationship that involves boundaries. All good relationships have boundaries. All good relationships, best marriages, even have boundaries. So, Students and people who are pursuing relationships at this time who are just thinking about relationships, you might want to remember that when you are getting to know somebody. If they don't respect your boundaries, it's not a godly relationship. But God's relationship has boundaries and he sets them up and he illustrates them in some different ways. First of all, he uses the man and the wife. Later in this chapter, he creates Eve. And he provides the companionship for man. But that wasn't just for man. That was an illustration of God's relationship with mankind. If you read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 32, he describes this relationship this way. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words. It's, a, it's not a one-sided relationship. It's a two-way relationship. Faithfulness, service, sacrifice, and love from both sides. And then he says this, So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is, this mystery is great. And anybody who's married in this room knows that marriage is a mystery and will probably continue to be that way until we die. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This whole passage was not really about husband and wife. Although there's truth there that has to be lived by husbands and wives. But it's really about Christ 
and the church, God's relationship with his people. It's a covenant relationship between God and us. Sacrifice, service, love, faithfulness, both ways. That word help, that word helper in verse 18 actually means, um, it, it means a polar opposite. It's almost as if it was, it's like saying um, the North and the South Pole need each other, cannot exist without each other, but they are on opposite ends of the planet. And I think that's a great example of uh, my relationship with my wife sometimes. So we, I can't exist without her. I love her. I need her. And I think she needs me. But there are days when I feel like we're on opposite ends of the planet from each other. And uh, polar opposites, so to speak. But in, in, in many ways, God, God is completely different from me. Very different from me. But he doesn't, the difference between his relationship and me, my relationship with my wife is that God does not need me. He doesn't depend on me for anything. But he has chosen to trust me with some things because he wants to. That's an act of love That's an act of grace. It's an act of mercy. It is a wonderful, blessed thing that he's done for you and me on this earth. So marriage was used. Parents and children were used in Scripture. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother as part of the Ten Commandments, that your days may be prolonged in the land which your Lord, your God, gives you. This is an agreement and a promise and a consequence. Children are supposed to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. We are supposed to honor our fathers and mothers, because if we don't, our land, our our lives might wind up being shorter than they're supposed to be. And the blessing of this is that if we honor and obey our parents, our lives will be longer than they would be otherwise. So this is a symbol, it's an illustration of the covenant relationship God started with Adam and Eve. There is a consequence, but there's also a blessing provided that we follow the rules. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 through 5 it says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you And that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is God and Israel illustrating this covenant relationship. There are boundaries. There are rules. But there are blessings. We have a hard time accepting the fact that God has rules for us. Man, that just doesn't seem very loving. Why doesn't God... Just set us free, you know? But those rules, even before the curse, before the fall of man, before everything went bad, there were rules. It's not because things were bad, but it's because God is the Lord and he's not going to give his authority to anybody. He does not surrender control. He is God. So no matter how you, no matter how you look at it, We are always going to be under the authority of God. But there's a way to live under that authority in blessing and in love and in peace and in hope for eternity. And then we see the God that created the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. 
In Hosea chapter 6 verse 7, Hosea says, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Hosea is speaking about the people of Israel sinning against God. But he refers back to Adam and he says, Just like Adam broke the covenant with God, we have broken the covenant with God in our sins. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we really blame Adam and Eve for all the sin of the world. But the problem is, every single day of our lives, we take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Every single day of our lives, we've chosen to sin against the Lord. And we sin against God. We live this way. And that's why we desperately need grace. Because at this point in history, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had not yet sinned. They had free access to the tree of life. And then, when they sinned against God in chapter 3, if you look over in verse 23, it says, Therefore... Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. As a consequence for being disobedient to God, he was cast out of the garden and his access to the tree of life was completely denied. Now, the tree of life was not the source of eternal life. God is the source of eternal life. The tree was a symbol of that source of eternal life. And as long as they had access to that, it was a symbol of their access to the eternal life from God. But at that point, they were cut off from the tree of life, destined to die because of the consequence of their sin. But we see the tree of life in Scripture in a lot of other ways where we are allowed access to eternal life. Shortly after this, God established the sacrifice, the payment for sin, which now required blood to pay for the sins of mankind. And a tabernacle was built. And inside that tabernacle, they had what was called a menorah, which is a a lamp. It was a lampstand with um, uh, many pieces on it, many candles. And... uh, Uh, They would burn this lamp in the tabernacle, but it would sit on the table next to the showbread. And as the priest worked his way through the temple and offering the sacrifices, uh, shedding the blood for the sin of mankind, and he worked his way into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God himself, as he worked into this place... Worked through this place, he would pass by the, the lampstand, which was a symbol of the light. And it was it always shown on the bread, which became the symbol for the bread of life. And the lampstand became a symbol for the church of God, shining the light on the bread of life. And we know is Jesus Christ. But this menorah, um, it, some say that in the tradition, the Hebrew traditions were that in many ways it was designed to represent also the tree of life. And the tree of life was a symbol that, re, that reminded Adam and Eve of the eternal life that was available from their creator and their Lord. That tree of life was their symbol. And the menorah was the symbol. It shined light on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and his payment for our sins. So even throughout history, we see the Garden of Eden represented in the temple of God and we see the tree of life represented and there is hope 
for access to the tree of life, but now it requires the shed blood of sacrifice. And then later on, it becomes the shed blood of Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. But then we get to Revelation chapter 21 verse 10, and we see our ultimate hope. In 21 verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very costly stone as a stone of clear crystal jasper. And then in Revelation 22 verse 1 through 5, it says, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have any need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. And in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The only way we can do that is by surrendering to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. It is his robes of righteousness that we are covered in. So that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. We have hope now of access to the tree of life because we look to Jesus Christ and his shed blood for forgiveness and we now have free access to the tree of life and one day we will pass from this life to the next and somewhere in the middle of all of the end and God recreating the earth, the new Jerusalem, there will be this place and so much of what he describes in Revelations looks so much like what he created in Genesis chapter one and two. We see the Garden of Eden. We see this beautiful place of fellowship, of communion, of relationship with God, our creator. And one last thing I want you to see is that uh, this also answers the problem of evil. We really struggle with the problem of evil because, you know, how can a good God allow evil to exist in this world? Somehow, it's hard to explain, but in the midst of the Garden of Eden, he places the knowledge of good and evil, um, the potential for knowledge of good and evil, and the potential for life in both of these trees before sin ever happened. And at the end of day six, when both of those potentials were there, he said they were very good, meaning God was well pleased with the fact that that was in his garden. And I have a hard time believing that chapter 3 and everything else in Scripture is God's plan B that implies that God made a mistake. Somehow, in the completeness of creation, all of this, including all of the rest of Scripture, is God's plan A. But evil still has to be answered for. How can a good God allow this evil to happen? And we look at Adam and Eve and they bear the responsibility. We bear the responsibility for the sin and the evil and the corruption and the death that we see in this world. And why does God allow it to keep happening? Year after year, generation after generation. There are some days I look at the world around me and I'm working in ministry and I'm looking at the lives of people and I see people suffering and I hear their stories and I pray for them and I grieve for them and I weep for them as God calls us to do as a church. But there are some days I look at God and I say, God, why don't you just put a stop to all this? This is miserable. My life's not miserable, but everybody else's seems to be miserable. You know, this is, this is rough, this world that we live in. And 
He takes me to 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is what he says. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Saying, you have a God. He's your creator. He's your Lord. He created the heavens and the earth. Where is he? Look at the world and the evil that's in it. Where is this God of yours? And God responds by saying this, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's what the mockers are saying. Verse 5, For when they maintain this, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Book of Genesis, the flood, he promised to never do that again. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fires. Yes, he promised to never destroy the world again by water, but he will, burn, he will destroy them all with fire. Great consolation, right? Kept, excuse me, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It's being reserved for the day of judgment. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with one day, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Speaking about evil and the continuation of evil from generation to generation. Why is God allowing this and not putting a stop to us? Don't miss the fact that God is not slow, but he is patient. God is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. So he's saying, listen guys, yes, there's evil in this world. And the reason God is allowing it to continue is because for him to put a stop to it is for him to put a stop to the entire earth altogether. And that means the people that are around us that do not yet have access to the tree of life by faith in Jesus Christ will be destroyed for eternity with the judgment of God. So God is not being slow and God is not being weak and God is not allowing evil to make us miserable. God is allowing the continuation of this world because he is a patient God, not wishing for any to come, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so he says, since all these things are to be this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So we have a creation. Yes, it's been corrupted, but we've been given, through Jesus Christ, access to the tree of life. We have been given the privilege of being called back into the responsibility of why we were brought here to begin with. He is our creator. He is our Lord. We are created to fear him. He commanded us to multiply and serve him on this earth in his creation. We are created to serve him and to worship him with our service. And we are created to love him in this relationship. In Psalm 33, verse 6 through 8, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
I'd like to invite you to think about your life. It's very easy to miss the fact that we are under the lordship of God. We do have a job, and it might not what we've been might not be what we've been consumed by all these years. And we do have a relationship that God's called us to honor in obedience. So there's a lot of implications there for the way God wants us to live our lives as Christians. I invite you to stand and pray with me as we pray about our lives and what God might be calling us to do in this creation of his. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your creation and your people. I pray that your name would be glorified and would be honored by the people in your house today. You are the creator. You are our Lord. Help us to live in fear of you and stand in awe of you every day of our lives. You've called us and commanded us to work and to serve you in this earth and to value the things that you've created and to take care of them. Please help us, God, to take good care of the world that we live in. We know close to your heart is a desire to care for the fatherless, the widows, and the poor. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do our part as servants, to reflect your image in those situations. In a world of corruption and of pain and suffering, help us to do our part of reflecting your image into that. In a world where you are not honored as God, help us to do our part in reflecting your image into this world. God, I pray that between you and us, we would love you, we would cherish you. You looked at us, you said that we were very good. Through Christ, We can hear you saying those words to us now. I pray that you would help us to cry out to you on a daily basis and worship you with our lives. Lord, if there's a lost person in this room today, I pray that you would call to their heart and help them to see it's not enough to just believe that you exist and that you created. But by faith, they need to surrender to you as Lord and Savior of their life the one who died to give them free access to the tree of life. I pray that they would call out to you for salvation. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to just take a couple of minutes and pray over this. And if you need to come to the altar, you're welcome to come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.